Good morning, fellow alcoholics and friends. My name is Ella Bayham Cook, and I'm a grateful, happy alcoholic. I'm glad to be here, but I say that everywhere I go. (laughs) I'm just glad to be alive. I'm glad to be where I was invited to come. And when I leave here, I'm going to be glad to know where I've been. (laughs) And that's a switch for a drunk like me. Uh, I didn't get here from drinking a little chill wine. I got here because I drank too much too long. First, I'd like to thank you for asking me to replace Marie. I can't do that. I'm sure you'll have her again someday. She's a marvelous speaker and a wonderful girl. But I'm real happy to come because I've only been to Omaha one time, and that was in 1945. And the only thing I remember about it is the Blackstone and the Cottonwood uh, Cocktail Lounge. And, uh, and that President Roosevelt died, and I went in the bar to cry. You know, God, you could just live it up, you know, when something that traumatic happened. Uh, I didn't have to have a reason or an excuse. I just, I just drank a lot, period. I was one of those people that, when I, the first time I uh, drank, I drank too much. I like the taste of it. I like the way it felt going down and warming the gullet. And I like the feeling that I got after I did it. Uh, and uh, so from the very first, I have wanted more. More, more. Uh, I was 16, and uh, we had a spend-the-night party. Well, we girls did. It was the days before the boys joined you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I was 16, and most of them were 18 and 19. I had skipped some grades in school. And they told me it was wine. Well, it was a, uh, a high-proof uh, rum. And I didn't know it, so I said, I'm accustomed to it. You know, trying to be old, you know, and so they would accept me. I'm accustomed to it. Just pour me a glass full. And uh, I got drunk, and I took all the girls' inventories. And it, it came in very handy when I got sober. Everything I said about them, I became. <laughs> Everything. Oh. Uh, and it was that way. I never, I never just wanted one drink. Never just wanted one drink. Uh, I wasn't timid. I didn't drink because I felt uncomfortable around people. I grew up in large crowds. Uh, there were seven of us that lived to be adults, and seven children. And I had uh, four, nine and four, 13 or something like that. Uh, I had four, uh, that, 13 aunts and uncles and, you know, their husbands and first cousins. And I grew up in a town of uh, 400 people and I were related, was related to about 350 of them. And we had large crowds in our home, so I, I, I didn't drink because I didn't feel adequate. I don't, I, just, I liked it. And I, that was excuse enough, I guess. Uh, but uh, I didn't. I called it social drinking, and I called it. I I sometimes said I drank till I went to sleep. What I actually did, I drank till I passed out. I didn't know how to call anything by its right name when I got here. But my sponsor just seemed to have a word that fit everything. You know, like when I said that. Uh, uh, I said I don't know how to take this inventory. Uh, and he said, well, right there, your character defects. And I said, like what? <laughs> you know. And he said, well, like Steve. And I said, Walt, you don't understand. I didn't steal. And he said, uh, I'm not talking about cash rates to Honesty, Alabama. I'm talking about like you're going out with a married man. He said, that's stealing. And I said, I don't get it. And he said, well, you steal the man away from his wife and children and possibly spends money on you that, that they needed at home. And I said, Walt, you don't know me. No man that I go out with is, is a short of money. He's got enough for all of us. You know. And, uh, I, I don't, Walt had a hard time teaching me. Uh, you know, I said, he said, well, right there and lie then. And I said, well, I don't lie, embellish at times, but I don't lie. And he said, Alabama, you either tell all the truth or you don't tell the truth. And I just didn't see it that way. <laughs> but he gets, kept giving me examples, you know, so that I would. So with help, I finally got an inventory taken. But I wasn't going to tell anybody some of those things. I'd made up my mind. But you know, it started hurting so after I got sober. 
And I don't know, some people say they wait a year, two or three to take their inventory. They're not ready for it before then. But it was driving me crazy, these things that I never see. Any time that I thought of the things that I had done, I just drank some more so I could uh, not have to think of what I had become. And I, when I couldn't drink and hide those feelings, I had to tell somebody. But I didn't trust you. And, uh, well, I wasn't trustworthy, so why should I trust anybody, you know? And uh, so uh, Walt decided maybe it'd be good if he'd got an Episcopal priest for me to talk to. And he did. Well, I wasn't going to tell you about uh, not paying income tax on certain things. You know, uh, I, I was afraid you'd report me to the IRS. And it's real strange. Uh, real, real strange. I've taken further inventory since then. That one wasn't the best one I ever took. But uh, I've added to it. I've never taken a whole new one, but I've just added to it. As you would tell me what you did, I would remember I did it too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's what comes from sponsoring, you know. Uh, and I just stop them right in the midst of it and say, uh, I did that too, and let me tell you about it. That's so I don't have to write it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, this Episcopal priest told me that maybe I could just not mention it to the, maybe I could just not mention it. And he said, but if you make, if you make his good story out of it, as you told me, I, I don't think they're going to put you in jail, Alabama. <laughs> uh, I was awfully sick, just very, very sick. But I, I swore there were things that I'd never tell anybody, you know, a sponsor, a priest, or anybody. And, uh, I would be willing, if we had the time today, and if it was appropriate and good taste, I'd be willing to tell you everything I've ever done. Because since I quit doing it, it's all right for me to tell you. You know. <laughs> but as long as I continued some of the practices, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, it's, uh, I just, well, for instance, you know, I didn't like women when I got here. I, I hadn't always been like that. But after I got uh, wasn't trustworthy and didn't like myself, I have any self-respect, the human dignity left. I didn't like women because I thought they were all like me. And uh, after I like, started liking me after I got sober, I learned to like my sex again. Now, with you men, I loved you drunk or sober. It just didn't matter, period. I loved you then, I love you now. But uh, I'm so glad that I feel differently about the women in AA. And... Uh, there weren't too many women when I came into AA sober. Uh, there were in the big cities, there were women. But there was a, quite a stigma for a lady to come into AA when I came in. I came in, in the, uh, to stay in Independence, Missouri. And we had one woman that had, I guess what you would call, real good sobriety. But this woman drank in neighborhood bars. And I'd never been in a neighborhood bar. I drank in uh, Las Vegas, <laughs> New York, and, you know, San Francisco. I like the better things in life, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, country clubs and private clubs and so forth. And she was cross-eyed. And, she, uh, and uh, I said to the boys, I'm not like Marguerite. And they said, Alabama, you'll see. You'll see that in many ways that you are later, but uh, said she just didn't have the opportunities you had, you know. And but I went to an old timers meeting. Uh, well, actually, it was a uh, Pasadena, uh, the Villas uh, anniversary the other night, and there were women there, uh, quite a few of them that had uh, more sobriety than I had. And I, I found these uh, hunted for these people when I went into new towns. Because I needed someone, women to go ahead of me to set an example so that I might emulate them. I think possibly one of the nicest things that I ever had happened to me was when uh, a woman from uh, Dallas uh, came to Missouri and they got us to come out and speak in Independence. And she got up there with this gorgeous pretty hat on and well-dressed and... She told what she was like, and she intimated she'd done everything I had. And do you know, I felt free. I felt that if she can stand up there with all of that human dignity and talk, and I watched the men watch her, and I saw they respected her, you know, and it, 
and it made it all right for me to say that I was a woman alcoholic and that I was powerless over alcohol and that first drink. It made it all right for me. And then when I got to California, there were quite a few women. I don't know about in Omaha, but in California, uh, there have been articles in the paper, if you want to meet men, North Hollywood Group is the place to go. <laughs> you know, that's in the Palm Springs magazine. It was in there, and uh, they most likely place to find men. And uh, real attractive men, and men that are in the theater and so forth. Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know how many girls come for that reason, but some of them appear not to have a problem with drinking that I meet today. <laughs> uh, but I, it's, I just take care of my own drinking problem and let them worry about that. Uh, I mentioned North Hollywood was my home group. I went to my first meeting there. I liked everything about it but not drinking. <laughs> and uh, I got out of Dr. Shara's dry. We didn't have cock care and all those things where you pay thousands of dollars to get sober in, go back in a few weeks. Uh, uh, we just didn't have those things. And I'm grateful to God we didn't because I would have used them to death. You know, I would be dead now if we had had them. If I'd just be dead. Uh, but uh, there was a dry, it was dirty, and the doctor took you off with peraldehyde and with uppers or downers, maybe if you were in real bad shape. And I told him I didn't use those things, and he said, well, how do you get sober? And I said, well, I taper off with alcohol. <laughs> I, I told you I had a love affair. Uh, the love affair went sort of like this. It started when I was 16, and uh, it was puppy love at first. You know, I just played with it. And... But then I became real interested in it. And uh, then I became addicted to it. And uh, by the time uh, I was at Dr. Shara's dry, I was in acute alcoholism. But I didn't tell the doctor. I tapered off so easily with it, I never knew exactly when I was off and on. <laughs> wouldn't take the medicine. I would hold the pills in my mouth when I was in hospitals. They wouldn't put you in the hospital for alcoholism, but I, I would give symptoms. I was a quick study in those days, and I could listen to people's symptoms, and I would have it, and would call uh, uh, the uh, head surgeon or uh, somebody at the hospital and say, would you send an ambulance at once? And I would describe what I was suffering from, you know, something that uh, required immediate attention. And I would get in the hospitals that way. And then uh, they didn't ever find what I told them I had, but I had several surgeries when I've been in like that. <laughs> I'm not saying whether they were necessary or not. I may have just over-described. <laughs> but I, I functioned okay without the things they removed. And... Uh, I just didn't, I told you, I didn't like the pills. I don't know why I knew better than to, than to take the pills, but I seemingly did. And I would let it be known to the nurses that I just spit those pills out when they left, that I wouldn't go swallow them, that I didn't believe in pills. And the nurse said, well, they're so expensive. And I said, well, I can't help it. I'm not going to swallow them. And they said, well... When I bring them in, i got a father at home suffering. They always had somebody at home suffering, and they'd like the pills to take home. And the minute I could get one in that little hot hand, I would tell them I wanted them to bring me a bottle in. You know, and I'd give them a check and tell them where to lock the bottle up in my luggage and so forth. And I would drink, and then if I couldn't get whiskey any other way, I'd just go out in a robe. You know, and get me a bottle and come back to bed with it. <laughs> and I, when I got here, I thought I was better than the gals that had drunk, you know, on the street women. I thought I was better. I, I remember drinking in the alley when I came from the Riverside store to uh, Dr. Shira's Drive. Well, I went to North Hollywood Group, and that's my home group, and I think it's the finest group in the world. I hope you feel that way about yours. If you don't, don't last up somebody else's. Uh, stay
stay here and get busy and you'll like it. The more you give of yourself and the more you do for the group, the better you like it. That's when it becomes ours, when we give of ourselves to it. Uh, we, uh, we know it would be more sanitary to use paper cups at North Hollywood, but we feel the therapy of washing those cups is essential to recovery. <laughs> you know. And uh, I started that way, and that's the way I trained the people I sponsor and to pick up the ashtrays. And that was all I was capable of at first. But moving right along, i tell you one more little thing about North Hollywood Group. It's the oldest group in the San Fernando Valley. And, uh, uh, you know, we've been in the same building over 40 years, and we're way up there in 45, 46 years old. But, uh, what was I going to tell you? Oh, I went to that meeting there, and I took a bottle. I didn't like all those cliches on the wall, like easy does it. I knew... Nobody ever did anything easy. <laughs> uh, I did everything the hard way, and that think, think, think. Well, my sponsor told me when I got here, it didn't apply to me. <laughs> he told me he'd do my thinking until I was capable. The only thing he wanted me to try to remember was that you didn't take that first drink. I thought that I was so ill, the book had stated that you know, that some of us are incapable of being honest with our, ourselves and that we may not can stay sober because of that inability. And I t told my sponsor about that, and he said, Alabama, can you tell the difference in a glass of whiskey and a, a glass of water? And I said, any fool can. And he said, you can stay sober then. <laughs> so when they brought it down to my level, I understood it. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, at my first meeting, oh, I forgot to tell you, I ordered, uh, I called uh, Las Vegas. I had known two or three days ahead of time they were going to take me over there. And I called Las Vegas and asked them to ask their manufacturers to send me out an understated navy blue suit. I wanted to be properly dressed to go to a social event. And uh, I came there with my little hat with a veil on it and uh, the white gloves and the pearls and everything. I want you to be sure to know that I was a lady. Because I'll tell you, I had not, I had been one at one time in my life, but I wasn't any longer. And it was so important that I wear that facade. I don't care what you think, Ness, that's your problem. <laughs> I know what I am today. And I don't have to try to impress you or let you believe that I am a lady. I'm a good sober woman. That's what I am. The best woman I've ever been in my life. Well, I was all right as a young kid. Uh, you know, I went to psychiatrist, one of the finest there in L.A., and I went to St. John Psycho several times, you know, places like that. And the psychiatrist and I were still in my childhood, which I was enjoying. Uh, and my childhood was great. You know, we had a lot of love in our family, and I knew everybody in town, and their dogs, and their cats, and, you know, every horse, and... Uh, we were still on my childhood when I dismissed him. And uh, I'm so grateful because he could have confused me. <laughs> uh, I got the doctor. They don't give you scissors in psycho. And I got the doctor that was attending my roommate to cut me out. He had a child in kindergarten to cut me out some of those paper dolls holding hands. And when the psychiatrist was to arrive, I had them spread on the bed with me. <laughs> And uh, uh, the doctors, uh, they cut them out and told the other doctors to be there at 2 o'clock when my psychiatrist came. His face turned red and he overcharged me because of that. <laughs> but that's all right. Uh, get, uh, moving right along, I will tell you that uh, my husband, my first husband was dead when I came here. Uh, I married the only man I ever wanted to be married to. I married a mining engineer, and he did primarily gold mining. I have been called a gold digger, and I don't resent it. And uh, uh, I was a good one. I loved this man. I loved him very much, and if I could stay sober for anybody, I would have stayed sober for him. Uh, he had an addiction, too, but I didn't know about it because by that time, I'm in the last stages of alcoholism. But we had moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and stayed there in Boulder City for three years. And he became addicted to legal gambling. 
and uh, he said, no matter how many doctors, nurses, ambulances, uh, what my bills were, they could not compare to what he spent in uh, uh, gambling. And uh, I realized that, you know, it's just it's a sickness just exactly like I was sick from alcoholism. But I love this man. And my thoughts were with him since I've been here in this part of the country. He uh, was the only man I said that I ever wanted to marry. And I was a good wife until I drank too much. Uh, and then after I committed adultery, I couldn't stand myself. I could not. I was in a blackout. I didn't know it until the man called me and asked me to go out again with him. <laughs> and uh, I, every time I thought of it, I had to get drunk. And every time I got drunk, I'd do something, maybe not that, but I would do something bad and something that made me feel guilty and ashamed. And I had, I just, I couldn't stand to stay sober. I couldn't stand to stay sober. Uh, it was all right when I broke some of the morals that, uh, uh, things that I'd been raised with because, uh, you know, they were from back in the another century. And it was all right when I did, uh, did some of the things that uh, the church didn't approve of. But it wasn't all right when I broke the standards I had set to live by. And I wanted to live by those standards. I, I didn't ever want to be different from that. And that's when it really hurt. That's when I was so ashamed and I was so guilty. And I would just have to drown it and forget it with the alcohol. But going back to my first meeting, uh, there were a lot of things that I picked every flaws in everything there, of course. And now I just don't, don't you dare say anything against North Hollywood Group because that's where, uh, where I have maintained my sobriety. But uh, uh, that night a man got up and <clears throat> said he had been in a penitentiary. Folks, I was so ashamed for him. <laughs> I was so ashamed that he didn't know better than to talk about it. I didn't think it was so bad he'd been there, but it was the talking about it that I, I, I couldn't understand how you didn't. He certainly must have had uh, been taught better than that. And uh, I married a man after I'd been sober three and a half years, a prince of a man. And Jim had been in a penitentiary. <laughs> he was a sober man. And he got there for doing the same things I did. <laughs> he wrote big, bad checks. <laughs> and so did I. But see, I had a father, and after my husband died, he covered him until he died. I had a lot of enablers in my life. And uh, he, uh, he, my husband covered them, then my father covered them. And my four brothers covered them. And then when the Alanons, they were called the family members group then, you know, uh, when they got to my family and taught them release with love, uh, I tell these Alanons that some of their husbands may have covered them. <laughs> but my checks got covered. Never once even was in, had a policeman talk to me about it. And I wrote checks for over a thousand dollars, too. Uh, Jim Spank uh, just stopped doing business with him, you know, and told him that he no longer could keep any money in that bank. So Jim had to use other people's checks and names. And uh, they really frowned on it. <laughs> Jim was killed in an automobile accident a year and a week after we were married. It had been a marvelous year and a week. I'm glad I had it. I didn't feel that way when he died. And I don't think I could have made it through it. Don't think I could have made it through it. But we did. We did. You and God and I made it through it. There were two men that loved me enough. At the end of two weeks, I'm still poor me in it. And they said, Alabama, you eating solid food yet? And I said, I can't swallow it. They said, what are you eating? I said, the doctor is giving me liquid uh, nourishment and they said Alabama you go into a restaurant with us tonight if we spoon feed you you go eat a complete meal and these two men loved me enough to take me there they said we go to all night restaurant I don't care how long it takes you go eat <laughs> then they said we're going home with you they went home with me they said if you're uncomfortable in your girdle you better go get it off <laughs> put on a robe we're going to be here a while 
And they did one of the best jobs of taking my inventory I ever heard. <laughs> and they told me that I should be down on my knees every day of my life and thanking God that I had the kind of life with Jim for a year and a week that we had had. They said they'd never had it. And they might never have it. And they didn't know anybody else in AA that had had a better year and a week than I had had. And that if I didn't quit saying that, poor me, poor me, poor me, it was going to be pour me a drink. And I'd find myself drunk one morning. And those fellows stayed until 7 o'clock in the morning trying to help me. Now, Bakersfield is not Hollywood. I went out in my robe as the men in the neighborhood were leaving to go to work and kiss both of the fellas goodbye. <laughs> and I didn't give a damn what the neighbors thought because I knew what it was about. A couple of days later, another man called me and he said, Alabama, that's a girl that's not going to be able to stay sober in her parents' homes. They don't understand. Could you possibly take her? They knew I had that big house by myself. And I said, sure, I will. Then I found out she had a boyfriend that was a drunk. So I took, I, he didn't sleep over, but I fed him for days and, you know, and talked to AA and took him, you know, twice a day to AA with me. All I needed to get back on track. All I needed is to get out of self. That's the reason I think I'm so happy. I managed the North Hollywood group. It's a non-profit corporation. It's not a club. People refer to it as a club. But you don't have to pay any dues. It was given to us by some grateful members before there were any traditions. And it's a meeting place. And it's for people to come and sit and talk with people who are sober. And see, the people that use it in the daytime couldn't afford it. And I'm so grateful that I'm there and that I can talk to them. And uh, it's not intended to be a central office, but since we're the oldest group in the valley, we get as many calls as many small central offices. And I have the opportunity to share every day of my life. And you young people, you young people keep me sober. You coming in and telling me you need a hug, you know I need it. You know I need it. I have no children or grandchildren, and uh, I married once again in AA, but sex in AA is not enough for a basis for a good marriage. You need more in common. And uh, he's married to a non-alcoholic and very happy, and I'm glad, and we're friendlier than we were in the marriage. And... Uh, uh, I have these young people that come in and they give me these big hugs and uh, I, I, I just, it couldn't be any better if I had grandchildren and you know just couldn't be any better because I've come to love them as much as if they were my own the only thing I have to watch is to be sure that I tell them what they need to hear and not what, what they want to hear you know and they take it from me that's a beautiful part of it they take it from me and, but I share with them. I don't talk down to them. I share with them. I tell them what I'm like and that they are no different from what I was like when I came in there. Something wrong you need to take care of? Okay. Uh, now, let's see, where was I? Uh, yeah. Well, anyhow, uh, after my husband died, uh, my... Uh, my brothers uh, came in, one brother came and got me and took me to uh, uh, Sedalia, Missouri. I don't know if you know where it is, down about 36,000. My brothers thought if I worked that I might be happier. They'd ask me if I wanted to go back to college. But you know very well I couldn't learn drinking as much as I did. And I said, oh, I didn't think so right at the time. I better get more, better adjusted. And, <laughs> you know, I was wanted the long adjustment period. And... Uh, so they built an office on into their building, thinking it'd be very helpful if I would work for them. And I got to work some days, but I didn't ever stay after lunch. And uh, <laughs> uh, I met a man during that period. I always met men uh, <laughs> and, and that period. And I never had seen him except when I was drinking. And uh, he decided he'd like to be married. And... Uh, he asked me to come back to Connecticut and uh, visit and meet his family and so forth. And I charged a bunch of clothes and I went back and 
Everything was fine because his family was good social, heavy social drinkers. And we celebrated my arrival, and I had bottles in the suitcase to drink between social drinks. And uh, then they, they came and they quit celebrating that I had arrived. And they all went visiting except uh, Carl and I. And uh, we listen, were listening to a ball game, and I'm dying. See, I've been drinking far more than they have. And I haven't had a drink in the three or four hours. And uh, I never shook on the outside. I shook on the inside. And I said, Carl, let's have a drink. And that man looked at me and said it was too early. <laughs> I, I thought it was a ridiculous statement. And then he said, and besides, we wouldn't want to drink alone. Well, there were two of us. <laughs> and, uh, I truly didn't care whether he joined me or not. And... And, uh, you know, that was the end of the conversation. And I told you I was out of whiskey in my bag. And uh, uh, his mother had liked me a lot. I heard she was deaf, and so she talked a little bit loud. And she, I heard her tell the uh, daughter-in-law, she's a lovely southern belle. Well, I want to tell you the bells quit chiming. It's <laughs> start clanging. Uh, so I just didn't do a thing but call a taxi and went back to King Mouth and got myself a bottle and I decided to buy them some for the house too. And I came back there and Carl took that bottle away from me. I'm not a fighter. You know, I never got... I, uh, men protected me everywhere I went. Complete strangers, policemen protected me, everybody. Because I, I, I just wasn't a fighter. But don't you try to get my bottle. I'll kill you. <laughs> that, well, you see, that's my life blood. And I picked up that bottle, and I was going to hit it. You know, I aimed it at his head. He saw me pick up the bottle and put a chair, and it busted the chair. And his dear little mother was standing there. So I asked him to take me to New York, drive me into New York, and I left them. I've never seen them since. <laughs> and, uh, thank God. And, uh, I wrote a letter of apology, uh, you know, said I hadn't been very well, and I guess the whiskey sort of did funny things to me. And, uh, but, uh, anyhow, uh, I stayed in New York quite a little while. I'm not certain how long. Uh, I checked in the Roosevelt Hotel, that's where uh, we have our, uh, what do you call it, you know, trustees meet there. Uh, I stayed in the Roosevelt Hotel, and, uh, uh, I drank an awful lot and I had to be hospitalized and they took me over to the Knickerbocker Hospital. That's where they moved towns. And uh, the redhead uh, nurse Teddy was there and uh, uh, they had, uh, you had to have just, nobody could come to see you except people approved by the inner group in New York and they sent somebody different every day to see me. The doctors had said that they'd have to put me in Bellevue if, if I didn't... Uh, wouldn't allow him to call AA, and, you know, and have somebody sponsor me in it, uh, the Knickerbocker Hospital. And he said, you wouldn't like Bellevue. <laughs> and I've heard about it since, and I wouldn't have. I have heard about it, but, I mean, I know people who have been there. And uh, so I, I went with the... See, I went to AA in North Hollywood in 1951, uh, and I, I went in uh, Missouri, and I went in New York, but I never told people as I made the trip across country that I had been to AA anywhere else. I didn't want them to think I couldn't stay sober like you do. And uh, anyhow, my brother finally, strange things happened there. But my brother uh, finally had a doctor and a nurse. Uh, they called the room, and I had a doctor and a nurse in it then uh, to put me on a plane and send me back to Missouri. And they said, well, they were afraid they couldn't get me on the plane. They didn't have the ramps like they do now. You know, you had to walk up the steps and so forth. And uh, they, oh, she said, oh, you just take her out on the field in the wheelchair and buy a fifth and you wrap a paper sack around it so she can tell it's a fifth. <laughs> and you walk ahead of it and she'll follow you. <laughs> Put it on the feet you want her to sit on. <laughs> and I did. And I was met by my strongest nephew. And I fell off in his arms and taken to my brothers. And my brothers had been talking to you, Eleanor. And they told me that they felt that they had enabled me to stay sick. 
And that they weren't going to do it any longer. And that they were going to try to get Mother and Daddy to have me incarcerated and declared incapable of managing my own life and my own money. And I told them something of my financial condition. They couldn't manage it either. They were astute businessmen. <laughs> but uh, uh, you don't like to do that to your sister. It doesn't look good. And uh, I knew they didn't want to. What I didn't know was that uh, Rose, uh, the uh, Waldorf Astoria had called my uh, brother. And he, he was telling me about it this day. And I said, why would they call you and for what? And he said, they said that you said you represented me of my company. And I explained to him, you didn't represent me of the company. And he said, I said, Dan, but I wasn't in the uh, Waldorf Astoria. He said, you must have been. You owed him over $1,000. <laughs> I give you my word of honor. I guess that it was amnesia. I have never had any recall. The checks are there. I have never had any call. As far as I knew, I was either in the hospital or the PA or the Roosevelt. I don't remember the Waldorf Astoria. I was still checked in the Roosevelt at the same time. <laughs> you figure it out. And I don't buy my own drinks and dinner. I don't know what I spent that money for. And they told me they didn't want me in their homes anymore. They didn't want their children to see me like that. They they seemingly knew I was sick and not bad, and just, let's keep it that way. And I, they were kind of distant thereafter. The, I embarrassed their wives when we went to social functions, and they asked me if I possible not to show up where their wives were going to be. They could handle it, but their wives couldn't. And I found that I had to have a breast surgery. Well, I had carried my bottle in my bra and my money. You know, my mad money in my bra, uh, and I wore a lot of stoves and uh, tapes and things so nobody would know that I had something in my bra. And I thought, well, if it's malignant, it's self-inflicted. <laughs> I called my brother and told him the doctor thought I might have cancer of the breast. And uh, my brother sent me to some specialists, and they said, well, they thought that they'd best operate because they weren't sure whether it was malignant or not. They didn't have such sophisticated tests as they have today. And uh, I knew that, I knew it was inflicted, inflicted if, that I had caused it by carrying a bottle there. I carried it there so a doctor wouldn't find it or the police wouldn't find it, you know, and so forth. The police always helped me back home. They were the enablers, too. And uh, after it was all over, it wasn't malignant. Uh, it wasn't malignant at all. They kept me in that hospital three weeks. You know, they throw me out in three days now. And, uh, building me up so I wouldn't have to drink again. And the doctors were all away because I had been there drunk. And they had tried to detoxify me any number of times. And I pulled the, I pulled the IVs out of the feet and the hands. And the interns couldn't get them back in. And the surgeons would have to come over, you know, after midnight. But... I had to get them out so I could get up to get the bottle so I could take care of getting well. Uh, they just never understood it. And uh, so they told me that I could have access to the doctor's library and read about my disease and everything. And I made up my mind that I would never take another drink. I didn't know that I couldn't quit drinking if I wanted to. I plain didn't know it. But I made that... I, I said to myself that I won't drink. My brother and sister-in-law had me for dinner the night I got out, and I went home about 9 o'clock. And by 12 o'clock that night, I have ordered a case of whiskey, and I'm not expecting company. <laughs> and I decided I'd drink until I died, or until I had all I wanted to drink, uh, until uh, my family had me incarcerated. I knew they didn't want to, and that I was going to have to do something myself, one, one of the three things. Well, I've never had all I wanted to drink after I took that first drink. But I haven't wanted to drink in a long, long time because I haven't taken that first drink. In fact, it's been 33 years and a few months, and God, in it one... You're covering for yourself there. You're clapping for what God and Alcoholics Anonymous could do for a sick drunk like me that I couldn't do for myself. Of myself, I would not be alive. 
But God intervened, and I'm going to tell you about it before I quit. But anyhow, I decided, I did, obviously didn't die, but I was reborn. And I wasn't incarcerated. Instead, I was freed from bondage. Bondage of self and from the al bondage to alcohol, too. And at the end of about the fifth day, they figured it up that I... No, but I don't remember making a call. I had the bottles in bed with me, uh, you know, and they saw no signs of where I had eaten anything or prepared any food, but they found about two-fifths for each day. And uh, this woman called and wanted to come over, and I said that I was dressing to go to work. And honest to God, I was trying to get bathed to go to work. I had been to work in six months. And... Uh, I thought it was 7 o'clock in the morning. It was 7 o'clock in the evening. You know, I didn't know the time of day even. And she begged me to go home with her. And I said, Ruby, I not, may not be through drinking. And she said, I understand, but we scared you're going to die if you stay here by yourself. And I said, can I take my bottles? And she said, no. But I'll buy a bottle and I'll be in charge of it. And she said, I won't let you go in DTs and uh, convulsions, Alabama. I've never had a convulsion you don't know when you're going to get them. <laughs> and I've had DTs. I'm not the convulsive type. Uh, <laughs> and besides, I never was without whiskey long enough to go in one. But anyhow, I've seen people that did have the whiskey, though, that went in them. God, I've seen some awful ones. I've known people that died from them. Not with, that doesn't happen quite so often now. But uh, she took me to her house. And people like you came, and you took turns and shifts during the night. And I many women in AA in a small town like Sedalia. I don't think it was but two women there. And one of them was a wino, and she had been a prostitute. I'll tell you more about that later. And uh, I saw her get her first birthday cake, and those men looked at her like she might be an angel. And I thought, my God, I got cold chills when I tell you about it. Uh, the respect that this woman had from these men. And I thought, if they ever look at me like that, it'll be the greatest gift I could have. It was, it was with, I think it couldn't look more lovingly at their mother than they looked at this woman who had cleaned up her life, who had cleaned up her life. And she was notorious in this town. And God, she set an example for me. If she could do it, I could do it. But... Uh, most of the women, uh, all of them except Ruby, were non-alcoholic. And they came after square dancing, and a group of the square dancers stayed in their pretty costumes with me. I don't remember a word you said, but I remember how they looked. And I saw a look on their face that I knew I had had on my face. And all night long, I tried to think what that look was. I now know it's peace of mind, serenity, purpose in living and human dignity that was coming through in the countenance on their face. And that I had had all of those things. And that I drank it up. And I drank it up. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted it more than I wanted anything in the world. And I asked God to let me get sober if I died doing it. That I wanted to be sober before I died. And I wanted to look one time like these people look again. And the next morning, I told Earl and his wife, Marie, who was not an alcoholic, that I wanted to get sober, but I said, Earl, I think this is the last stroke I'll have to have. I don't think I'm going to live. And Earl said, you're very sick, Alabama. But we're going to get in touch with the hospital, and we'll do what we can. The hospitals wouldn't take me because I'd been a problem. And they said they honestly didn't know how to treat me, and this was the truth. And it was snowing, and the planes weren't flying out of Missouri. And there, I know, you know, there were so few places that took women alcoholics uh, to detoxify them. And they tried every available hospital anywhere around. And finally they called Independence, Missouri, and talked to a man named Walt, back of a little clubhouse, upstairs over an empty store, the nearest thing that Independence had to... Uh, Skid Row, they had some bedrooms and one bathroom, some petitioned off our bedroom. And the men would take other men in there and detoxify them. And if somebody was 
extremely ill, you know, near death, they'd call a doctor. And they asked Walter to let them bring me there. And Walter said, we have no facilities for women. And Earl said, well, we can't get her in any hospital. We can't get her out on a train. They won't take her. We can't get her on a plane because none are flying. And he said, we've got something's got to be done. And said, well, she is sick as you were. She is as sick as you were. But Dr. Nathan and some men <clears throat> found you in this jail trying to beat your brains out by butting your head on the iron bars and the concrete floor. She's equally that sick. And Walt said, have you told her what the place was like? And he said, no. He said, from what you told me about her, I don't think she would <laughs> like it. <laughs> and he got on the phone and he said, Alabama, this place has no carpets on the floor, no drapes at the window. It's nothing but men and me up here. Occasional woman comes in, you know, and we have meetings in the little club room. But he said, it's dirty, but it's a lot of love here. <laughs> Would you be willing to go to any lengths to get sober? And I said, well, I'm willing to die if I can be sober. I'm willing to die if I can be sober, to die. And they, he said, give up his skin, bring her. And I hallucinated all the way up. I smelled magnolias in the dead of winter. And but it was kind of nice. And <laughs> uh, insisted I get dressed properly to go and I, so I put on that understated navy blue suit that I had ordered to go to my first AA meeting and men carried me up 12 steps I didn't know it was 12 steps until uh, they brought another woman in after I'd been there a while we made it possible to bring women in there too and they were, as the men were kept bringing her up the steps she counted them and she says 12 steps to recovery they had told her about recovery I was the sponsor, this woman. Girls asked me, said their sponsors tell them they have to be sober a year to sponsor. I wonder how in the hell they thought that the new, uh, the old timers got sober. <laughs> Bill and Bob was, so, uh, Bob was out uh, talking to, uh, in three days, wasn't he? He was making his amends on the first day and cleaning up his own life, you know, after his operation and everything. Uh, I sponsored this woman and she stayed sober till she died. And she didn't die of alcoholism. And I had as much enthusiasm or more than I have today about it. See, I remembered exactly what Walt said to me and, and I, you know, and I just parroted what people said to me to her. But that's, I don't know, any other way to learn than by example and to emulate the people who walk like you want to walk and talk like you want to talk. Well, anyhow, things looked like they were going good, and I was so happy I was saying that I was going to be like these people. And I went insane. I went insane. And they, the doctor there in the town just didn't know anything else to do and couldn't help me. And they called the man that had the doctor, an alcoholic, Dr. Nathan. Out of, he, my sponsors are dead. I'll use their full names now. Dr. Nathan out of Kansas City. Dr. Nathan, you... Dr. Silkworth, he knew Dr. Bob, he knew everything they knew plus things that he had figured out about, uh, he knew how to use some new drugs, ACH, TNH, and cortisone and all of those things that, uh, that other doctors in independence didn't know how to uh, use them at the time. They were comparatively new then. And the doctor had worked with Walt and had brought him through it. And uh, the doctor said that Walt and I were the two worst ones that he had ever worked with in his life. He told me this later. And so he came over in snowstorms twice a day to take care of the sick woman. The women could not handle him at all. And Dr. Nason told Walt I could kill him. The adrenaline was pumping awfully fast. And he said she can kill a man twice her size with her bare hands, if she goes totally insane, she may. And Walt said, Doctor, I'm not afraid. I know where she is every minute because I've been there. He says, I'm not one particle afraid. Thank God he wasn't. That man stayed with me five days and nights. They brought him a reclining chair in there. He asked me if I could remember that he loved me like a brother. In all, in all of my insanity, I knew what he meant. God, I love that man. 
He's dead now. He died sober. Earl died sober. And John Brooks died sober. Those were my four sponsors, and I thought I was awfully smart choosing them. I'd been sober three or four years before I realized they chose me. I didn't choose them. <laughs> but thank God for all of them. Thank God. At the end of the fifth day, they had already asked permission to put me in a padded cell in the jail there in Independence to keep me from hurting myself or anybody. And Walt didn't tell me this until I was better. But he did tell me that the prognosis was not good. He said the doctor says he's done everything that he knows that are in medical science to do for me. And he said, Alabama, your family's prayed for you, and I have prayed for you. And, you know, daily, out loud. And he said, groups that don't even know you have prayed for you. Churches are praying for you. And he said, Alabama's not working. It's just not working. Could you pretend that God's polite and that he does not come where he's not invited by the host? And I said, yes. Pretend I had done a lot of. And he said, Alabama, you asked God to remove the obsession for you to drink and to restore you to sanity on a lifetime basis, a day at a time. And I said, Walt, you know I can't remember all of that. <laughs> and he said, honey, I know. Ask God let you to mean what you're going to say after me. And word for word, I repeated that prayer after Walt. And a miracle happened. In a dirty bathroom that 12 men and I were using to get sober in. So it's the end of November, 1952. I heard God say to me, don't be, uh, don't you uh, be frightened. If you've been there, you wouldn't have heard a thing. I heard God say to me that I could be sober and I could be sane on a lifetime basis the day at a time. And that would mean the miracle. The miracle was, see, I even knew then, shortly after that, when I started telling people about it, I knew what I heard was a playback of what Walt had prayed so long and what I had prayed. But the miracle was, I believed it. I believed that I could be sober and that I could be sane on a lifetime basis, a day at the time. And in my believing, and with your help, and I had extra help, extra, extra good help. That doctor stuck with me over six months. Extra good help. How grateful I am. I don't like to cry from the podium because I get all messed up where I am. But I want to tell you that I want to shout it from the rooftops, what God can do for us that we can't do for ourselves. God is our understanding. And I maybe I don't understand him like you maybe, but it doesn't matter. I the Bible sponsor told me begin by believing I wasn't God. <laughs> and that's a good start. That's, they brought everything, they reduced everything to its uh, lowest common denominator for me. So I was sick, very, very sick, and I am grateful to God that I nearly died. I am grateful to God that I was so sick, because if I had been less sick, I would have felt that I could have continued drinking, and I would have died out there, and I would have missed this whole trip. <laughs> I would have missed this whole trip. I stayed there with them. Uh, they didn't have really, it wasn't convenient to keep me. They talked to my brothers and they said that they had kept women up there, not in the room, you know, when I was so sick. And they were having to keep women there for the looks of things, even though that men were taking care of me. And my brothers uh, had said that I'm afraid to send her out to an apartment alone. And that they offered to buy, you know, pay for nurses and so forth. And said that they didn't believe that was the answer. And Dan said, well, Walt, you were with her the entire time she was drunk and you, we trusted you with her life. And you took care of her then. She's certainly sober, is in less danger of anybody attacking her now. And he said, we respected you men then and we trusted you men then. We don't care what people think. You saved our sister's life. And if you think that's where she needs to be, keep her there. And they kept me there. And I, as, then I would say, why don't we take that girl that wanted to come in? I could sleep on the sofa, and I could take care of her. And it was the blind leaving the blind, but with enthusiasm. <laughs> and, 
Well, I had, I'm going to end up jelly within the hour. But God, I'm 73 years old and been sober all this time, and I just can't tell it fast. <laughs> and, uh, I heard one old timer uh, say to another one, what's your name? And he said, do you have to know now? <laughs> and that's just a, a name. So the only thing, uh, it takes me just a little bit longer to put it together than it used to. But anyhow, what happened was, uh, Walt helped me with my steps. He called in an Episcopal priest. This priest said that a family that faced a uh, black group helped them start the first black group in Kansas City. And of course, now we are not separated. Thank God for that. Thank God, because I don't believe God sees color. I don't believe he sees color. We got people from every part of the world in California. You know, we are melting pot out there. And I love every one of them. And, you know, I don't know where they thought Southern people were prejudiced. I was taught no prejudice in my life. We would never prejudice in our home. But let me get on with what Walt did. I talk about him a lot, but see, I know God works through people. And I know that's the only way God has some working is through people. And through their voice or through their actions. And, uh, Walt uh, told my family that if they loved me, he knew that my money was tied up, that, that it, my husband and I had gone through. You see, I used ambulances like taxis. <laughs> and hotels, I mean, uh, uh, hospitals like hotels. And uh, private nurses like maids. You know, I'm not proud of this, folks, but that's the kind of woman I was. I was my husband's hostess for many years and uh, in the mining world. And uh, the uh, stockholders, when they came, right then they came, then I had a chauffeur. Now, that wasn't for status symbol. That was so I'd get back with the car. <laughs> and, uh, and when I was supposed to. And everything went well because I had a lot of free trips and could travel everywhere my husband did and be invited to their lovely homes on Long Island and up in the Poconos. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was born in a little country town. Good folks, but no money during the Depression. And I've read a great deal about, you know, uh, upstairs maids, downstairs maids. Uh, we had a black woman that helped us, <coughs> Mandy Jane and then Aunt Nellie, but these, you know, French maids and all those things, I took to it like a duck takes to water. <laughs> and I had read enough and visited my rich skin folks enough to know how to act. I was entertaining Wendell Wilkie by the time I was 23 and people of this caliber. And, uh, you know, the stockholders of the company. And I was an asset to my husband. But I want to tell you towards the end, I wasn't an asset. I was an ass. <laughs> and uh, uh, what happened was, that uh, I told a simple little joke about the devaluation of the American dollar to my, the chairman of the board at a dinner in North Carolina. And we had the, uh, one of the front tables, and I told him this joke, and he said to me, Evelyn, that's my real name, I didn't know you had communistic ideas. You don't say that to a drunken sober, uh, uh, rebel. You just don't say those words to a drunken rebel. I stood up so my voice would carry in this club. <laughs> and I pointed my finger at him so everybody in the room would know who I was talking to. And I called him a son of a bitch. <laughs> I had never used those words but once in my life, and I didn't know what they meant, but I got my mouth washed out with soap. And I told him my family was making a safe democracy when his family was trying to get steerage together. <laughs> and it was the truth. It was the truth. And so after that, until my husband died, that company never had a, anything but a stag party. <laughs> they couldn't insult him, my husband. And they wanted to keep him by not inviting me. But anyhow, uh, I, I started sponsoring people. I started, if my sponsors answered the phone, I'd answer it and say the same thing they said next time. And then I saw that they stood at the door and introduced themselves to people as they came in and said, won't you come over with me and have a cup of coffee? And I did the same thing. And I started then saying, are you new? And if I didn't know where to go from there, I would take them over to Walt, you know, uh, uh, some of my sponsors. And uh, 
Walt told my family that if they loved me, that they shouldn't give me a penny of money for one solid year. That if I remained a parasite, that I wouldn't stay sober. To let me have some self, human dignity and self-worth by going out to work. Now, I didn't like that word. It grated on my ears. <laughs> I asked him if they had to say it to spell it. <laughs> I just, I never had had to work for a living. And, and they wanted me to go to work. I called on the telephone and they didn't have fair uh, uh, practice, you know, and coloring and so forth like they do now. And they wouldn't hire me. And I was so glad. <laughs> I knew my family wasn't going to let me starve. They told my family they'd see I had enough to eat. And they said, well, what are we going to do about all this bill? You know, we've run up to the doctors and everything. And they said, no, don't you pay us or anything, and don't you pay the doctor anything. She's going to do it when she gets sober. She's going to do it herself. And I didn't, I, I was too sick to go for a job for two months. But when I got started getting a little bit better, I, I went out looking. So my sponsor went out and got me a job. My brother had already got me one to work for the State Department. And I, my sponsor wouldn't let me go. And I asked him why, and he said because that he was taxpayer. And <laughs> that man got me a job for 76 cents an hour, and I ditched, and he told me I ought to pay them to teach me to work. <laughs> Now, that's the kind of sponsorship I had. Told me I had to stay there two years and my recommendation would be no good. I was at work before I went to bed sometime, uh, you know, in the old days. And uh, I, w I worked for two years and they told me, and I went to them and resigned. And they told me, oh, after I'd been there five months and so for seven months, they made me manager by my department. And I did have some self-respect and human dignity from it. And my brother brought me a thing of bills from Sedalia that day, and he told me to write every creditor, and I said, what shall I tell them? And he said, tell them you've been ill, and that you'll pay them as soon as you go to work, as quickly as you can, and then you have an estate that's going to be settled. But you will send them some a token each month to show them that you are willing, and you don't want any of these debts written off as bad debts. And I said, well, what shall I tell them I've been ill from? And you know, my brother said, why don't you try alcoholism? <laughs> I wrote those letters, and folks, not one bad credit record on my... Oh, and, and some of it took three to five years to pay off. You know, but I paid all of them. And I can stand up here. I've made my amends to the best of my ability. My mother, thank God, lived 25 years. I was able to see her... The men in the group were just marvelous to me. I'm so glad we didn't have SSI and all of those government funds where they would support you and make parasites out of you. We're killing people that way. We are killing them. I see them sitting in that club room, able-bodied men dying, dying because they are not out working. I am so grateful I didn't know you could apply for relief. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that I am self-supporting. I have done any kind of work. For I managed men's lodges. They asked me if I knew how, and I said, well, I have uh, lived in hotels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I know good food. I know uh, good service. Uh, they said, what do you know about hunting? I said, I can read fast. <laughs> my daddy and my brothers were hunters. I made more money for them than they'd ever had made by man managing it. Uh, I, I, my, I was taught that a lady could do anything that she had to do. Well, I think you got the idea that when a woman was sick as I was, came into a place as small as independence, the word got around, and people sort of came to see how the woman was doing that was so sick. And they talked about it, and was talked about it, uh, it's a miracle that I got sober. And I started believing some of the things I heard. And uh, I started thinking I was pretty good, and I started wearing a halo. And if you've never seen an alcoholic wear a halo, I'm happy for you. Uh, they're most unbecoming. 
uh, they kind of shred lay on an alcoholic. Uh, I think that's the residue from the uh, toxic poisoning left in the alcohol. <laughs> and they have a way of coming down and blinding us. And that's the position I was in. That was the position when I was in. When One day I went down and the boys said, come on, Alabama, sit down, let's talk about your day. I, this month meeting, I had to work that night. And I said, boys, I've got to go upstairs to see this poor sick woman that came in today. You know, virtuous and holier than thou. And Dick the Wino looked at me and said, Alabama, what she done, you ain't done. I said, Dick, I, she told everybody today at noon in this room right here that she was a prostitute. I had to whisper the word. Dick looked at me, not with the alcoholic's eyes, but the Al-Anon eyes. (laughs) And he pointed his finger at me, and he said, Alabama, don't you know the only difference in you and that gal upstairs is that you didn't know you could sell it? you didn't need the money. (laughs) Folks, any time that I feel that I'm doing something pretty good, you know, by staying sober, or that I might be a look, have a little bit better sobriety or something than somebody else, all I have to do is remember how Dick looked in the eyes and remember how stupid I was. Folks, I love being here with you today. I love AA and I love being sober. Thank you.